0: we're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. And we're going to go very old school this week, Uh taking it back to the pioneer days, you might say, with the structure of this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We're not going to do our three normal rounds, but we're not going to totally do an all questions considered episode either. We're going to split the difference a little bit here because we had obviously Derek Lewis over the weekend defeat Curtis Blades in the main event of uh fight night 185. Pretty important heavyweight win there on a fight card where you had a, a, a bunch of fights featuring the big guys, frankly, and uh headed into next week. We obviously have the biggie boy. Jarzino Rosenstrike going up against Cyril Gone in a heavyweight main event fight at fight night 186. So we're going to do our best to talk about all of the heavyweight action, both from last weekend, but also coming up next weekend. We're going to be answering as much of the listener mail on that subject as we can. And then, uh, after doing that as sort of like a, an extended 30 minute jumbo round, like you might see in Ken Shamrock versus Dan Severn, for example, we're going to be going to our overtime round where we're going to answer some more listener mail questions basically about odds and ends from the week that we didn't feel like really fit under the umbrella of this heavyweight discussion.
1: That is assuming neither of us gets finished in the normal jumbo round. Overtime round in case, you know, if needed.
0: Yeah, I feel pretty confident that this is just going to be a lot of circling and us throwing feints at each other. Okay. So uh, despite all the booing, we're probably going to roll straight into an overtime round more or less unscathed would be my I mean, projection.
1: And that is pretty on brand for the co-main event podcast, despite all the booing
0: <laughs> to soldier on right ahead, yep. soldier on. All right. Are you ready to get into it? Do you have anything else you wanted to bring up any uh, anything you wanted to throw out there to start?
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to tell people that. The Co Main Event Movie Club is finishing time travel movie month. Yeah. This week.
0: Yeah, did uh, over there on the it,
1: Patreon, patreon.com slash co event, support the unfettered discourse, all that kind of good stuff.
0: You know, when I uh, looked at the poll a couple hours ago, it was it was neck and neck. It was tied, in fact, fifty percent to fifty percent between Safety Not Guaranteed and Hot Tub Time Machine, the two comedies that we've chosen to to try to bring at home. For time travel movie month here.
1: See, that's the thing: is the poll has ended. Okay, fifty percent to fifty percent.
0: Okay, what's the? Uh, let me look at the total number of votes, though. What's I don't total totally
1: know how that works because it says one hundred and sixty-five votes.
0: Yeah, we got an, an odd number, so you know what we have to do here: we got to download the results and then create a spreadsheet. Ah, Jesus Christ! I was hoping you weren't
1: going to say spreadsheet
0: to find out which movie has prevailed, probably by a single vote.
1: I mean, for one thing, I did not realize until just now when I clicked download the results. And this maybe is something patrons want to think about. It shows everybody's individual vote. It does. Like yeah. it is not an anonymous vote. You no, might think not. that you're out there. You know, Chris Rennie might not think that we know that he voted for hot tub time machine. But we do, Chris. <laughs> wow. We do.
0: I would, uh, I would expect you to protect this man's privacy. One man, one vote there in the voting booth. But there you are putting noted MMA artist, Chris Rennie, his business in the streets.
1: Your business is in the streets, Chris. Nabi Buchholz,
0: he's a safety not guaranteed guy. So there you go. Well, now I fully expect you to have beef with a couple people now when (laughs) when this episode hits the streets.
1: No, the uh, I think that you know, we we'll figure it out and then figure out which one that was, but man, it really would be nice when they do the download results thing. All it is is just a list of people's names, what time they voted, their contact info, and then it's just like whether they voted for one or the other. And it's like you couldn't just give me a tally at the bottom? You couldn't just yeah. tell me? Yeah.
0: No, uh pretty bare bones just like all the other services offered over there at <laughs> patreon.com, uh frankly. But uh, you know they'll take a cut of the money every month, just like they will, just like clockwork. All right, let's get into this. Do we want to talk a little bit about the Derek Lewis performance against Curtis Blades, or do we want to jump straight into these these listener mail questions that we got?
1: You know, let's. I, I feel like we'll end up talking about the performance of, of Derek Lewis. Let's go ahead. Let's get into some of the listener
0: mail. Okay, first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Sean Schatzel, who writes: Let's imagine a hypothetical. It's the end of 2021. Francis Ngannou is the UFC heavyweight champion, having dethroned Stipe and then violently KO'd Jon Jones in his first title defense. Derek Lewis followed up his finish of Curtis Blades with a win over Jarzino Rosenstrike in the co-main of Ngannou versus Jones, solidifying his status as the number one contender. Does the UFC even book the rematch, considering the debacle that was their first encounter? You know, the one that Ben has conveniently erased from his memory. And if so, do they market it just by pretending the first fight never happened? Or does Dana White go on SportsCenter to explain how the odds of two stinkers in a row from these guys are is just downright impossible? Maybe they bring back cheeky names for pay-per-views for one night only. Something like UFC 269, the staring contest part due. Please, discourse. Uh, it is true, Ben, that the first fight between... Derek Lewis and Francis Nganu was a stinker back at UFC two twenty six in July of two thousand eighteen. And also difficult to reckon with the idea that Derek Lewis emerged there officially with a victory over Francis Nganu. Although uh that might be like the when if you're watching gymnastics and it's the low score from the Romanian judge, you just take that one and throw it out, and then uh you figure out the score from there because that fight between Ngannou and Lewis was really an anomaly for both guys. You had Big Fran, uh, was at a, a pretty, uh, interesting point in his career coming in off his loss to Stipe Miocic at UFC 220. It seemed like he was still dealing with some shell shock, still trying to figure out exactly what was going on there. And maybe because he didn't engage that much, you just had Derek Lewis essentially playing a waiting game. Obviously Sean Schatzel is. He's spinning it forward, apropos of time travel movie month, and having uh, you know, forecasts forecasted a bunch of different outcomes here to even make this a possibility. That said, Derek Luce's win over uh Curtis Blades over the weekend certainly makes Curtis Blades once again a live championship contender in this division. And if you if you engage in some game theory here that Francis Ngannou could be the champ during 2021 and could have a rematch with Derek Lewis this topic i think is is worthy of discussion and i would just say i would not in any way expect to get a fight that resembled their first one which i think was made us all a victim of circumstance more than anything else
1: i don't uh i don't recall the first one i don't know don't know what you're referring to feel like if these guys had fought before i'd remember it Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis? No, man, there's no way. I definitely remember that. So I'd be excited to see those guys square off for the first time. It seems like lightning in a bottle, a can't-miss matchup, and I'd look forward to see them throw those bungalows, man. But but we're looking way down the road. Yeah. And here's the thing I also wonder when it comes – I understand Derek Lewis gets a big knockout win over a guy who looked like he was in a position, at least, you know, mathematically in a reasonable, insane version of the MMA world to be up there in talks for title contention, uh, possibly after John Jones gets his shot. And you knock that guy out, people are going to look at you and like, okay, maybe this guy for a title fight. But it also seems like, like with everything around Derek Lewis, doesn't it feel like people are kind of going, yeah, how about Derek Lewis for the UFC heavyweight title? LOL. Like, and I get that some of it is like it's a cultivated personality thing that Derek Lewis himself has kind of done.
0: It's a bit. Like, yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit that he works. It's, even, it's though, even though it is his real personality.
1: It is a bit of a bit. Where he was telling people for a long time, you know, I don't even really train that much. I go to the gym for like 30 minutes and I look at memes on my phone and that's it. And then I roll in here and I and I fight. And, you know, sometimes after he's been known to lose a fight and then be like, oh, man, I really didn't do shit for this fight. And so he's kind of doing a thing there. But people also sort of treat Derek Lewis like, well, he's going to lose right up until he wins. He's going to be... Not a well-rounded fighter in many areas of the game. Like the same thing about how he's going to get taken down. He's just going to stand up. But then out of nowhere, he'll just land a big bomb and it's over. And I think you could see like in this Curtis Blades one, there were moments where like athletically Curtis Blades looked like the better fighter and looked like the better all-around athlete and like he should win this fight. But Derek Lewis, one thing I appreciate about him is this man knows who he is Mm -hmm. and he knows what he's out there to do. He doesn't go in there with a super complicated game plan. he said afterwards, you know, with Curtis Blades, he is looking for that shot. He knows that, you know, as much as Curtis Blades might mix it up here or there on the feet, what he really wants to do is take you down and wear you down on top. So, he's looking for that uppercut on the way in or he's looking for a knee depending on, you know, where the level changes and things like that. And it, and that's exactly what he did. So, I think sometimes people treat him like he's just going out there just Throwing haymakers and getting lucky and landing bombs, but he can fight. Like this is this was a a simple and straightforward game plan, but one that totally worked for him.
0: Yeah, uh, you're right that it's dangerous to look ahead in any division in mixed martial arts. It's incredibly dangerous to look this far ahead in the heavyweight division, where, as we know from from the past, absolutely everything and anything can go wrong and will at all times. And just to spice things up a little bit more, we got the John Jones factor now in the mix at heavyweight for the UFC is talking like it sounds as though it's a done deal that John Jones will fight the winner of Steve Miocic and Francis Ngannou. And John Jones sounds a whole lot less sure, just judging by what he's putting out on social media. He still sounds a little bit wistful about the whole thing, to be be
1: honest. He hopes to fight for the UFC again someday.
0: Yeah. Uh, That works out. I hope he didn't pack on all them extra pounds for nothing, as it as it turns out. But yeah, like obviously you can't shortchange Derek Lewis at this point. Like the guy's seven and two in his last nine, and he has a four-fight win streak now in the heavyweight division, which is like an eight-fight win streak in any other division. Uh and he's clearly a lot better than just Lucky. And and even on this show, you know, we've we've joked before about how Derek Lewis will take a deep breath and just stand up when a really talented grappler has him on the mat. And it seems like a cheat code somehow. But the truth is Derek Lewis couldn't do that unless he was really, really good at like that particular skill. And that like, that's not an accident that he's able to do that. He clearly has a working knowledge of, of technique and what he needs to do to be able to get up off his feet, which frankly, when you're a striker like Derek Lewis is maybe all you need to know in terms of what's going on on the ground. And it's probably more of like a calculated decision on his part than like, you know, just Derek Lewis not training that much for the for the Lowells. So like, yeah, at this point I feel like uh we need to give Derek Lewis his propers. He's he's one of the better fighters in this division right now. Uh he could obviously win the UFC heavyweight title since he can knock anybody out if he lands the shot. He's always going to have that opportunity and i think what you saw here against against curtis blades is that like uh he's able to do that against high level you know technical fighters who are going to come in with their own game plan and 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 you know all Derek lewis needs is that one shot here's a, a question along those lines i guess a little bit from jizzy b who writes did Derek lewis do us a favor by putting curtis blades title hopes out of its misery if blades would have won he would have effectively been put in contender purgatory for the foreseeable future also, are you not stunned that Lewis hasn't yet suffered a Johnny Walker type injury during his celebration?
1: Well, the good thing about his, he's got his celebration down at this point. Yeah. You know, and he might add some little flair, but you're not going to injure yourself doing the DX crotch chop. And something tells me Derek Lewis might be the kind of guy to do a DX crotch chop after, like, you know, winning wee bowling or something like he's yeah. this is not the first time Derek Lewis has been out here throwing the DX crotch chop. Probably you know this week, so I I feel I feel good about the safety level of his celebration. But you know, the UFC is probably thinking, "Well, thank God we don't have to deal with the prospect of Curtis Blades trying to wrestle the decision his way to a UFC heavyweight title." You know, they'd probably rather have Derek Lewis with his hot balls out here knocking people's heads off.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, When I watched this fight. I was reminded of uh of the old adage borderline cliche at this point from our guy Mike Tyson, that everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the face. Which happened to Curtis Blades a couple times in this fight. He came out there and did the thing that we thought he was going to do pretty soon after the opening bell, shot in on Derek Lewis, got punched right in his face for his trouble, and then took a couple minutes to to recalibrate things. Now I don't know if you thought Curtis Blades ended up winning that first round or not. He came through with a nice combination down the stretch there, maybe to to, to win it on the judges' scorecards. But then he comes out in round two, essentially tries to do the same thing again, gets punched in the face again, and this time it's lights out. Yeah, I
1: mean, he he did have a couple moments there where he's stringing some stuff together, and you're like, okay, Curtis Blades has some some more tools in the toolbox, but clearly that's what he's going to want to do is get that fight to the ground. And how you get it there, that transition, closing that distance, is going to be the, the danger zone for him. And I don't know. You could tell even before, like, setting up that that knockout, Derek Lewis is waiting for it. He can see it in Curtis Blades' eyes that that man wants to take you down. And he is just waiting. And Curtis Blades is kind of waiting on the outside edge of Derek Lewis's range. And there just didn't seem to be enough that he was doing to to give Derek Lewis something to worry about, to, to give him that opportunity to get in and close that distance without putting himself in danger. And honestly, that it helps to be Derek Lewis where you don't need a super big windup with that uppercut. You can, you can connect it in close just like that with the guy moving in and just, he goes crashing down like a tree.
0: He sure did. Uh, next question here comes from Devin Scott, who writes when Curtis blades was unconscious and moaning at the same time, You could also hear Derek Lewis bemoaning that this was quote Herb's fault. Derek Lewis was not in the assigned announcement area when he was declared the winner. He also referenced that Herb Dean was quote coaching Curtis blades. Can you give context to these events and help make sense of this? Um, I actually did not notice this when I watched the thing the first time around, especially not the moaning, but, uh, but yeah, these—I know that there was some talk about the about Derek Lewis's shots to Curtis Blades after the bell. Uh, he did the, obviously the DX crotch chops, and then he was on, uh, Twitter today posting the uh the GIF that said he was waiting for Black History Month to be over so he could make fun of Curtis Blades for all that shitty talk before the fight. Uh, so, like you so said, so he, like he, he, he can blame. knows what he's doing he's he's working his gimmick here in a lot of ways, but uh, I don't know exactly what the herb Dean thing is about, except to say that like obviously it's the referee's uh job to protect the down fighter, and uh you know, I didn't think it was like a slow or bad stoppage or anything, but Derek Lewis did get a couple of shots in on the unconscious curtis blades before before herb Dean stepped in to to pull him off.
1: Yeah, he can blame those late shots on Herb Dean. The the ones on Twitter, those late shots are on Derek Lewis, for sure. But, you know, I was writing about it. Somebody asked about it in the mailbag. Like, is this Herb Dean with another bad stoppage? You know, he had that one uh, in the Amanda Rebus fight uh, back uh, a few weeks ago where he kind of got in there, kind of didn't, and then had to tell him, no, the fight's not over, keep going. And this one where he's maybe a little too far out and, you know, which is tough. They're heavyweights. They're big guys. You're trying to give them their space, but then also one punch can end it. And I, I got out the stopwatch to try to tell how much time Herb Dean had. And it depends if you go from when Curtis blades falls, you know, cause it's, he he takes that shot coming on in and it's not an immediate reaction. It's like a little bit of a delayed reaction where it takes him a second. And I mean, he seems like he's probably out as soon as the punch lands, but his forward momentum carries him into Derek Lewis and then his body just crashes down. And if you go from the time that he lands on the mat to the time that Herb Dean gets in there to stop him, it's around one second. I tried to do it a couple of times with a stopwatch and one time. It's like 0.77 seconds. And then another the time, you know, it's like just barely over a second, uh, if you go from the time that the punch actually lands, like assuming like, okay, he should have been able to see that Curtis Blades was out the moment the punch lands, even then it's like two seconds, you know, right around there. It's, it, he lands those, both those two punches in under a second for sure. And you're asking a whole lot of the guy. I mean, I realize that's his job and it's high stakes and you got to get in there and everything, but it's like. Curtis Blades goes crashing down. You can't expect Derek Lewis to stand there and look at him and be like, "Mm, what do you think? Like, (laughs) should I, should I dive in there and go ahead and make sure this is over? Or should I just hope that it is like, he's out there. I totally buy Derek Lewis's explanation after the fight. I know sometimes Derek Lewis will say some stuff that he does not mean for us to take literally. But when he says like, Hey, I can't flip the switch that fast. I don't want to give a chance that the guy is going to sit up like the undertaker. If I see him go down, I'm looking to finish that fight and get out of here and go home and get my money. And that is all totally reasonable. And I don't think you can expect anything else from him. He gets in there, lands two punches in under a second. You know, Herb Dean gets in there as fast as he can, but that's tough to do. It's tough to, when the margin is that, that small, it's tough to get too mad at the guy for not getting in there quick enough.
0: Yeah, I agree. I like, I don't think anybody did a bad job here. I don't think you can fault. Derek Lewis for landing those those two additional punches, despite the fact that like when you see them on television, they look, uh, you know, a little bit ugly because you don't like to see a guy who's clearly already knocked unconscious get punched right on his jaw twice more. But like that's that's how those, the sport is officiated, man. That's what you tell these guys that like you got to keep swinging until the ref pulls you off. That's Derek Lewis's job out there. And so you can't really fault him for for following through making sure he finishes the fight. Uh And like you said, like I thought I thought Herb arrived right on time or as quickly as you could imagine anyone getting there to make the stop, especially when, you know, you got two big ass heavyweights in there throwing down. You can't be that close to them yeah. when they're when when Curtis Blades is shooting a double. You don't want to be standing two feet away Uh, because those guys need their own space to operate. And so, you know, you get a one punch knockout where. Especially from the referee's point of view, it's probably a little bit of an awkward angle. Even on television, as it had occurred live, it was a surprise to see Curtis Blades just absolutely, uh, go down like a bag of laundry from that one punch. And so, like, I don't think you can really fault anybody in this situation. I think everybody did their jobs and did their jobs well. And with Herb Dean, it's like people are looking for a, uh, an opportunity now to criticize Herb Dean because he's had a couple of weird ones he's, and he's had several where he has kind of flirted with the stoppage and then backed away and then come in and made the stoppage, like you said, but like, I don't know, man, I feel like, as I've said before on this show, these guys have a really, really hard job. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can do, if you do a hundred fights and 95 of them, you referee perfectly. The five that people are going to remember are the ones where it appears that you made some kind of a mistake or where you didn't operate. Completely, perfectly. So at this point, because Herb Dean has had those kind of uh, awkward-looking stoppages recently, I feel like we're just all kind of standing around waiting for him to make mistakes. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know that that's fair—a fair way to treat that guy. Next question this week comes from Shad Rap, who writes: So the Black Beast comes out and knocks out a contender and has technically beaten Francis Ngannou. Uh, Jones versus Lewis—the fight to make now, or is it a given that Jones will fight for the title next? I mean, it's probably a given that John Jones is going to fight for the title yeah. because I don't think he'd be coming up to heavyweight for anything less. But a matchup with Derek Lewis is fun to imagine, even if it's not necessarily the thing that's going to happen. It is, but
1: it, if you're the UFC thinking about what you want to do with John Jones after he gives up his title in one division, moves up to another one, assuming you can come to some kind of understanding where John Jones, who says he would really like to fight for the UFC again someday, gets a financial situation that he is pleased enough with and the UFC says okay what do we want to do with John Jones first fight at heavyweight it just makes the most sense that you put him in a heavyweight title fight right away don't the, the same way we talked about Scotty Cooks learning his lesson from trying to do trying to get too cute with the pairings in a, a grand prix tournament so that maybe in the the semifinals or the finals you get the fight you're hoping for no make the fight you're hoping for right away because you yeah. never know what's going to happen. Remember when we brought Miracle Krokop in here and we're like, okay, well, he's going to beat up on this dude, Gabriel Gonzaga. And then he's going to fight Randy Couture for the heavyweight title. And instead Crow done got Crow And that whole plan was ruined. And yeah. John Jones is, has done enough by far to get in there in a new division and get a title shot right away. And you can't say that it's not a legitimate move. I mean, he's one of the all-time greats. He's probably the greatest light heavyweight of all time. If he goes up to heavyweight and actually like commits to that division, he gets a title shot right away. Plus, if you're the UFC trying to sell it, how do you... I mean, for the heads, we hear John Jones and Derek Lewis are going to do the damn thing at heavyweight, swanging and banging and throwing them bungalows. Yeah, we're going to be there. But when you're trying to sell this thing outside the MMA bubble to a broader audience that might help you make it worth everybody's financial while... If you just say Derek Lewis against John Jones, no title on the on the line, no gold on the poster, it's a little bit of a tougher sell. Everybody yeah. understands what happened, what the stakes are. If you say John Jones going up there, heavyweight title fight,
0: yeah, yeah, I don't think you can underestimate what an enormous drawing chip John Jones is at heavyweight, and what an opportunity that is for the UFC. And like you said, at heavyweight, you don't want to mess around. You don't want to try to think two, three fights down the road. You don't want to try to have a warm up or a catapult fight, a stepping stone fight to try to get John Jones to that level. If you have him there at 265 pounds, and you have the opportunity to have him fight either Stipe Miocic or Francis Ngannou, you take that immediately because either you're going to come out of that fight with John Jones as your heavyweight champion, which would be huge for you if you are the promotion, or you have you essentially have the guy who defeated who handed john jones his first real career loss right like and you want that to either be miocic or Nganu. i would think from a promotional standpoint you're probably a little better off if it's francis Nganu because stipe miocic is talking about getting toward the end of the road here and uh you know only having a few fights left but like if that were the master
1: roll into an interview sounding like a bunch of lug nuts in a blender according to you
0: yep that's I mean especially post fight that's that's going to be the case. But like if you have the opportunity to either have John Jones as your heavyweight champion or have absolute wrecking machine Francis Ngannou being the first person to truly defeat John Jones in his career, you don't want to take the chance of losing that matchup. You have to put it together at your earliest possible convenience and as fun as it is to talk about Derek Lewis, uh maybe you could do that next. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean it it is kind of fun to imagine the world in which Derek Lewis hangs around. I mean, it seems like Derek Lewis is resigned to the fact that you're you're going to have to fight somebody else. You're not just going to be able to sit around and, and have him call you out for a heavyweight title shot unless something terrible happens to somebody. But uh, and and he seems like he has ideas about that. I mean, he he's out there talking about how he wants to fight Alistair Overeem. Keeps trying to talk his way into that one. It's like man. I don't want, I feel like maybe Overeem is at a point where I don't want to see that happen to him. Cause it seems like it's going to be kind of bad if Alistair Overeem gets in there with Derek Lewis right now, especially if it's the version of Alistair Overeem we saw against Alexander Volkov. But, uh, Derek Lewis is seemingly of the mind that he's going to keep fighting, keep making some money. And then who knows if you end up in another heavyweight title fight, you, you go out there and see if you can knock somebody's head off.
0: Man, Derek Lewis and. Al- uh, Alistair Overham is one of those matchups where you're looking at their records being like, how have these guys not already fought? Yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy. All right. This question here comes from Burley H over on Patreon. Okay. And if you don't know by now, you can go over to patreon.com slash co main event. Not only get yourself signed up for a bunch more fun co main event podcast action every single week, but also get yourself in the front row for listener mail, man. Just mm-hmm. like Burley H. He writes, both Tom Aspinall and Chris Docas got fun stoppage fight stoppage wins over the weekend and look to set look set to enter the rankings. Interested to hear your thoughts on the potential of these two prospects in the current heavyweight landscape. Uh well yeah, Tom Aspinall obviously beats Andre Olovsky in the in the curtain jerker of the uh of the ESPN plus main card with a second round submission. And Chris Dacus beats the old guy, Alexio Olenek, a little bit later in the card, first round TKO there. They both looked good. Tom Aspinall obviously has been talked about for, for a little bit now as an up and comer in the heavyweight division. And, uh, this was an impressive performance that he put on against Andre Arlowski. Cause not only does he become, I believe the second person in MMA to uh tap out andre arlovsky but it's his it's his third win in a row in the ufc it's his sixth win in a row overall he's 27 years old which makes him essentially a baby in the landscape of the heavyweight division uh and he seems like a, a a nice prospect man he's fast he's fierce that uh the punching combination that he unleashed on arlovsky in the first round of this thing was was incredible uh and with with aspinall Like, obviously there's a, there's so many variables at heavyweight. So many things can happen up to and including like motorcycle wrecks, but like, you just, you get the feeling like, don't rush this guy as, you know, take, take as much time as you think is, is legitimate to let Tom Aspinall get his legs under him in the UFC in a division that's not the deepest. But like, uh, you know, I'd like to see him get a test next, but I don't want to see him thrown in there with, you know one of the top two or three guys in the world because I would like to see if this guy can develop in a more uh organic way especially for a guy who's just barely now getting his feet weight feet wet against heavyweight UFC competition
1: yeah I mean I thought the same thing about Aspinall that I was really I was impressed by just the athleticism for a guy his size you could see when he was Popping off on Arlovsky in the first round, you're like that guy is quick, that guy can move, but mm-hmm. then also that he had uh, some awareness. He wasn't just going out there wildly swinging trying to take Arlovsky down with like one big punch. When he realized he had him hurt, he he kind of realized like, okay, he's he's hurt, but he's still in it. He's still dangerous. Uh, let me be a little bit more patient here. And then honestly, for me, when I watch Andre Arlovsky in there with a big young guy like Tom Aspinall, what I'm mostly hoping for. Is don't make me sad. Like, I understand nature is going to take its course in this sport, but they, the least, you know, tragic way we could end this, the better. And honestly, taking him down with just like a big bull rush takedown and then getting that rear naked choke in the second round, I was like, you know, I'll take that. Yeah. I will take that walking away. Yeah. Andre Alofsky gets to end the night conscious. You know, it gets a little bit roughed up and not too bad. We get to see Tom Aspinall work like, all right. Afterwards, I heard Tom Aspinall talking about like him and Chris Dacus, And I wondered, like, is this is this what we want to do? Do we have this kind of heavyweight division? Once again, it seems to kind of go in cycles in, in MMA. But does the UFC have a heavyweight division where you can take two youngish prospects and match them up against each other, rather than doing a thing of like, well, let's take the young guy against the old guy, which is essentially what we had here in both these fights. Aspinall versus old Andre Arlovsky and Dacus versus uh, Alexei Linnick.
0: Well, and it's one of the few times I think in recent memory where both those fights worked out for the young guys in the (laughs) way that matchmakers probably intended them to, because, you know, we've seen some of these wily old vets foil that those plans uh, recently. So to have Chris Dacus and Tom Aspinall get these wins, Probably played out the way you were hoping that it would. Uh, you know, putting those two guys against each other would be some classic kind of old school UFC matchmaking where, uh, they would oftentimes do that as opposed to maybe more of a boxing style, uh, matchmaking philosophy where you would want to, you know, I don't know if pad the records is the right thing to say because they're both fighting in the UFC heavyweight division. Whoever they fight is going to be tough, but like bringing them along and getting them some wins, try to make those win streaks look a little bit more impressive before you throw them in there. Uh, like against someone notable. And obviously, if you have these two prospects fight, heavyweight prospects don't just grow on trees. And if they fight each other, one of them's gonna, gonna take the L. Uh, so in that regard, it would, it might be a little bit, uh, you know, you, there would be a price to pay there from a matchmaking perspective. But at this point, like, it's kind of weird to even note that, like, we, it feels like we have enough going on at the elite level of the division that you could potentially have these two guys fight each other and, you know, whoever loses isn't going to be dead in the water they're certainly going to have time to to rehabilitate themselves so like i wouldn't hate it uh but but i also don't think it's like the only option you could do other interesting stuff with with either of these two guys so uh so i don't know we'll just have to see what's next it's interesting to note chris dacus his last 7 wins in a row have been by some form of of tko or ko so that's a dude who you can see with back to back performance-based bonuses from the ufc at this point he's a he's a guy matchmakers are probably gonna gonna like yeah um let's see here i guess we got a question here from scott gilroy who says after tom aspinall's submission went over andre arlovsky using a blast double that was eerily reminiscent of the time my old man and me had a few too many soda pops that one fourth of july that we don't talk about anymore (laughs) uh should i be more excited about aspinall or more sad about arlovsky you kind of just spoke to that a minute ago but like I don't know that you necessarily need to be that sad for Andre Arlovsky. Like he didn't look, uh, he didn't get starched and he didn't look, uh, lost or out, outmatched in ways that I feel like several years ago in Andre Arlovsky's career, maybe he did look that way a few times. And we were all kind of thinking this could be the end for him. He's been kind of able to build himself back up in recent years in some ways. And as we talked about last week, plans to go on fighting. So uh if Andre Arlovsky is gonna be a stepping stone or a gatekeeper, if you will, for these for these young guys, as you said, I'd like to see him lose this way than to see him get posterized by some kind of uh, you know, highlight reel knockout. So
1: Yeah. But you also you wonder what Arlovsky tells himself after that fight, because there are moments in there where you're just like, Man, you're you're not fast enough anymore to deal with these guys. This guy comes out there and he is fighting early on in a way not unlike the things that got us excited about a young Andre Oofsky a big guy who can move and who can string punches together and really hit and yeah I just when he said that comment about how he doesn't want to hang around he wants to fight as long as possible but doesn't want to hang around for these young guys to make their name off of them and then you come out of this fight where clearly that's what matchmakers had in mind it was exactly the thing you don't want to have happen that is in fact what happened I mean, it could have been worse but still didn't go great for you. What do you tell yourself is waiting for you as you stick around here in the USC heavyweight division? Especially because right now we, we've we made fun of the heavyweight division in general in the past as one of the weaker or less athletic divisions or the one where the drop off between the top three or four and the, the, you know, number seven, eight, nine kind of guys is the biggest. But right now the heavyweight division looks pretty good. Like just kind of all around. There are some good heavyweights out there and some good young heavyweights. And a guy who's like 27 as a heavyweight is a goddamn zygote. And (laughs) when you've got some of those guys hanging around and you're Andrei Orlovsky. I wonder if you're just asking yourself, like, what do they have in mind for me? And how might that affect how long I think I want to do this?
0: Yeah. I mean, you could tell yourself you didn't follow the game plan.
1: You can always tell yourself that because the game plan was not to get taken down and choked out. I'm
0: pretty sure. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Biggie Boy and Cyril Gone here, which is the main event fight scheduled to be the main event fight next week at UFC uh, Fight Night 186. Again, of course, from the Apex down there in Las Vegas, where we are doing them all right now. Uh, the co-main on this is Nikita Krylov and Magomed Ankalev at Light Heavyweight, which is, is going to be a couple of interesting matchups here back-to-back to to top this thing. This uh this fight card you got the return of Gregor Gillespie on here you got Angela Hill versus Felice Herring you got Jimmy Rivera so like some interesting stuff happening on this fight card let's talk a little bit about Cyril Gone, I guess to begin with uh, again like a thirty year old guy a young kind of up and comer viewed as as a uh, a potential top level prospect here he, he's uh from the same gym as as where Francis Ngannou got his MMA start over there in Paris uh under coach Fernand Lopez. And Gon came in with a certain amount of, of, uh, hype as just sort of like an undefeated kickboxer, the former, uh, training partner of Francis Nganu. And he, right now he's on a four fight win streak in the UFC. He's seven and oh, overall. Most recently, the, uh, second round TKO victory over Junior Dos Santos at UFC 256 back in December. Just prior to that, he beat Tanner Bozer. Uh, so he's done some impressive stuff in the octagon. Biggie boy is going to be, uh, a good test for him. I think on the heels of that Dos Santos, uh, victory. The biggie boy has also, also just beat JDS, but, uh, you know, has some, some other high profile wins under his belt as well. Alistair Overeem, Andre Arlovsky, uh, the one loss, of course, to Francis Ngannou, which I don't know how, how much you can hold that against anyone at this point. What are you looking for in this fight between a couple of guys who, uh, our potential title contenders, and especially in Cyril Gon, if he is able to get a win over the Biggie Boy, probably you know stamps his passport as a, a top level guy, or at least a uh, someone who's going to put one foot in that uh, in those elite ranks.
1: Yeah, it does feel like this is the fight where we're waiting to see, kind of like, all right, let's find out if Cyril Gon, right now at only seven and zero in MMA, is ready to become a Capital G guy. In that yeah. division, cause it's like, you know, you win that, uh, that decision over Tanner Bozer. I mean, Tanner Bozer, I think is a good, good fighter, good, smart, heavyweight, but you know, not physically necessarily blowing anybody's hair back. And then you beat Junior Dos Santos, who, as we all have seen recently on the downslope of his career. Uh, and so matching them up against Jasinio Rosenstrike is kind of, it's almost like the, uh, the meme of the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. I'm like, oh, okay. Big kickboxer, youngish heavyweight. Looks like he might be on the cusp of a, a big come up. Let's find out which one of you guys is the real Spider-Man. Seems to be the thing we're doing here. Somebody was asking in my, my MMA mailbag about the odds discrepancy, seeing as how like, okay, you got two guys who, you know, come from a kickboxing background, big athletic heavyweights. Why is Cyril gone such a heavy favorite? I mean, he's around a three to one uh depending on the the odds maker that you choose, uh Jesse and a Rose Strike going off at a little bit greater than two, you know, two to two and a half to one underdog. Uh and like why what accounts for Cyril Gunn being the favorite there. And it just seems like maybe we're looking at the two of them and going like, okay, if you both do roughly the same thing, this bigger, stronger guy looks like he does it a little better. Maybe he's a little more dangerous maybe just has a little bit more all around to give you in there. Whereas Junior Rosenstrike, maybe, I mean, we've seen him in a little tougher fights. We've seen him up against some some tougher opponents who can find some of those weaknesses, and maybe it just hasn't
0: happened to Cyril Khan yet. I know that it pains you to have to say those things about Tanner Boser, uh, the Canadian heavyweight who frankly got Ben Folks through some tough times back yeah. in 2020, through the, in the, the 2020 the, lockdown.
1: In the peak of the pandemic, Tanner Bowser came through for all of us, really. But look, my my love for Tanner Bowser doesn't diminish just because you know you you win some and you lose some that guy he he's bringing us a total package, and it was at a time when we really needed there to be a Canadian heavyweight with a mullet out here opening cans of monster energy drink with his one tooth like that's we we and by we I mean me needed that he he's the
0: hero that you needed at yeah. that moment uh Maybe the I, hero I,
1: I deserved honestly.
0: I agree that those odds seem a little bit, and not necessarily out of whack, but like a little bit long. I just want to know who's out here betting on heavyweight MMA because <laughs> like maybe try skydiving or something, you know, uh, drive around without your seatbelt. I'm, I'm not sure, but you clearly need something in your life. You're clearly a thrill seeker. And I know Ben, as a guy who publicly, very publicly this past week, put a bet down on an NHL hockey game that and he otherwise, won. that he otherwise might not have even cared about. Mm-hmm. And one. What do you think about this? How do you how would you feel about putting $20 you never wanted to see again down on Jarzino Rosenstrike just just to live a little, man? Just to just to spread those wings and fly.
1: I mean, like you say, it is heavyweight MMA. How about I mean how about five bucks I never want to see again? Just enough to get get some of those juices flowing. Feel like I have a little extra interest in the bout. Not so much that afterwards I'll be standing there in the bathroom looking in the mirror going, what the fuck were you thinking? (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I still want you to be able to buy groceries for your kids next week. I don't want it to be that big of a deal.
1: Although I got, I got $27. Of winnings thanks to the Edmonton Oilers burning a hole in my pocket. So who knows, man? Wait a
0: second. Like you put 20 down to win seven on the Oilers?
1: No, I I won. The 27 is profit. Oh,
0: that's pure profit.
1: I'm taking my 20 back, the 20 bucks I never wanted to see again, back. I got 27 bucks. That's basically, it's house money, Chad. What am I going to do with it?
0: You know what? There's no way this could ever go wrong. You've won that one bet. You've Mm -hmm. got this shit figured out. Mm -hmm. You've got your system. Yeah. Man. It's smooth sailing from here. You might as well, you know what? Put a put a down payment down on something big that you've been wanting for a while. Sports car, maybe? See if you can get that on lease.
1: I'm going to go to the jewelry store in the mall right
0: after this, right after we wrap up here. Nice. <laughs> Finally get me, that CME give, pendant you've been looking at.
1: Give me two of everything. That's what I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> All right, let's see here. Let's uh let's move on to overtime here. Let's answer some of okay. these odds and ends questions that uh that we got this week, um, I'm just gonna. I know that you wanted to get in this, uh, this question from Jordan Kyru, who I assume is a footballer or a hockey player or a rugby star. I'll, I'll a, check into it. Okay, U F the UFC's new face of has of Black History Month is Michael Chandler. I'm sure the guy loves his kid, but he's also on Parlor. Plus, there's so many Black UFC athletes. Uh, I don't. Looks like he forgot a word. Something just doesn't seem right seeing that spot. Maybe some uh white savior feelings. I don't know, help me out here. Please dis- discuss. Uh good to hear
1: from a St. Louis Blues right winger Okay. Cairo. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I knew it was some someone of that nature. Uh the UFC is making a big deal out of Black History Month. A bigger deal than I can recall that company making in years past and I don't know uh if it feels like it needs to do a little bit of uh of rehabilitation. After the owner uh, has spent the last several years making some somewhat questionable public political choices for a guy who is the head of a very, very diverse athletic company. But for whatever reason, we're doing a bunch of these Black History Month uh, vignettes over at the UFC. We did one on uh, Jim Brown and Daniel Cormier. This one about Michael Chandler having an, ad- an adopted daughter. I agree. Mm, a little bit has a bit of an awkward feeling. Adopted, adopted daughter,
1: adopted son. I mean, not mean that it matters, but it is a strange choice. Strange choice for for the the Black History Month thing that we're doing here, and it just seems like like I want to believe that it was well intentioned on everybody's parts, and you don't want to criticize like Michael Chandler for it because you know he's out there. I, I think giving us uh, like a real insight into his family life and all that kind of stuff but it also seems like somebody along the line should have been like you know it's not like we only have a couple black flat fighters that we could focus on and then we're yeah. we're out of ideas and so therefore we got to be like okay does anybody else have any kind of connections to the black community like we don't we don't have that problem at all. There's tons of people that you could choose from and and have good stories about. And so it just seems like this was a really weird one. And I guess uh, this too, this the point that that Jordan Cairo makes about this sort of white savior aspect of it. Like, it's just such an odd decision to make when you you're you're out here trying to, to be like, okay, who can we highlight in Black History Month? And you look at Michael Chandler, and you know that guy. Yeah. Right. Because he adopted a black child. Like uh, he he must really like and it's a why is that such a like strange thing Do you? Or why was that such like a, a noteworthy thing? You know, like just that he is adopting a child of, of a different race. Like that, that is the thing like, that is and it like the kind of unstated premise of that is like, isn't that great of him? Like to that to not only adopt a child, but to adopt a child of a different race isn't isn't that really something special? And I, that's just a weird choice for them to make.
0: Yeah. Adopted son. Sorry. I misspoke yeah. there earlier when I said adopted daughter. You're right, though. Like, you just look around at the annals of UFC history and there are m- multiple black champions, right? Maurice Smith, uh, Demetrius Johnson, Rashad Evans, Kevin Randleman. Like, you could do spots on any of those people.
1: Well, in, in fairness, of the four people... You named, I mean, one of them's dead. You could, I guess you could do the spot. Maurice Smith isn't talking to anybody these days, which is a shame because they've tried to get in touch with Maurice for different stories. And he's an interesting guy. I knew him from the IFL. I'm not talking to anybody. Don't think Demetrius Johnson really wants to talk to you. If you're the UFC these days, it's probably just like, leave me alone. Uh, you know, new phone, who dis kind of thing when it comes to the UFC. Um, but sure, Rashad Evans, like, I mean, but there's tons of people. There's ton, not even just like champions. There's tons of people that you could focus on.
0: Right. And you wouldn't necessarily have to interview any of those guys to do a, a, a highlight reel spot on them. Like you could just
1: imagine Demetrius Johnson. We have the footage <laughs> looking up from his video games and being like, what, like taking off his headphones. Like they're
0: doing what? <laughs> who, who told him they could do that? <laughs> I didn't give my permission for that uh next question this week comes to us from george byron who writes does the co-main event mean anything anymore how dare you george byron oh wait no whoa, he's not whoa, talking about us hold on. Talking- yeah, yeah okay sorry i thought that was Just, yeah yeah last night's was probably the least entertaining fight of the night granted that's coming off a prelim that kicked off with five straight knockouts but it still wouldn't have been my pick beforehand either can you explain the thought process behind this choice because it seems like the latest in a trend of quote unquote that'll do uh course he is talking about the co-main event here that was uh yana kunitskaya versus ketlin Vieira. um good to hear from lord
1: byron by the way yeah yeah
0: right always nice um i mean in some ways we're still dealing with uh with a matchmaking scenario that is probably not fully operational as you might say about the death star uh the UFC matchmaking philosophy is probably not fully operational at this point, just with uh ongoing COVID-19 stuff and the pandemic. And we talked last week about how they had fifteen fights scheduled here, uh, for this event, which I mean, a couple of them did in fact fall out. So, yeah, we ended up uh,
1: with twelve in the yeah, end. Like so we, we ended up with like a normal size fight card by overloading it to start with.
0: So you get the impression that they actually uh know that they know what they're doing that they that they made a good choice there i agree maybe like you look around on the card you could find another fight especially in retrospect that might have been a better co-main event but at the same time i I feel like we're just like treading water is not the right word for it but in 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 some cases just like doing whatever we can to even make these events come off and so yeah uh i'm willing to Especially extend UFC matchmakers who I think have a hard job to begin with. I am able to extend them a little bit of, of understanding during everything that's been going on trademark that sometimes, right. especially considering the UFC schedule, uh, which isn't going to take a break. We already made that decision that the UFC schedule trumps all here. Uh, that like sometimes it's not going to be perfect. Sometimes you're not going to have a perfect fight card to work with.
1: Yeah, but it is true. I think that if you're, especially if you're looking at these UFC fight night events, is, if the question is, does the co-main event slot really mean anything anymore? For the most part, no. Not yeah. in those events, at least not right now. Like it's not a super special distinction. It's. A I lot mean, times, it never
0: was. It's a made up thing anyway. Right? <laughs> That's why it's cards, the name of our podcast.
1: <laughs> some of the fight cards you see, you'd be like, all right. They definitely did. They took the like the title fight and then the next best, most relevant fight in the in the co-made event spot. And you know, it makes sense. There's there's a logic to it. And some of the bigger pay-per-views that you see, we're still doing that, you know, to some extent. Yeah, but, got
0: three titles on the line here coming up. So yeah.
1: yeah. Or or just when you had, you know, UFC 257 and it's like, okay, we're we're going out here. We got uh, Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor in the main event, but also relevant to the division and, and it's really going to matter and it's going to be a big fight for a couple of reasons is when you had Michael Chandler and Dan Hooker. And it's like, OK, that makes sense. It's a main event and a co-main event. But a lot of these fight night events, it seems like we're just saying like, mm, OK, you guys. Like you're already on this card. We're, we're we're just putting together some fights. We're thinking we're giving some thought to the main event, what we want in there. But after that, it's just kind of like, whatever, like you could sort of mix up and match the the order and not too many people would notice.
0: I feel like we kind of buried the lead here a little bit, 50 minutes into the show. Just now getting into this question from Mr. JM, which is probably the thing that everybody wants to know with the keenest interest. He writes, what was in that bag? <laughs> so the, the news out this week, Ben, the UFC has elected not to release Otman Azatar here after, uh, he engaged an associate in some reverse cat burglaring where you climb up a building to try to take a bag into it. We never found out what's in that bag. Originally it was uh, a straight up release for this guy having so spectacularly violated uh COVID-19 protocols over there at Fight Island at this point. Maybe because he is a uh kind of an up-and-coming special prospect, the UFC has elected maybe to give him a second chance here. Either that or the UFC remembered it doesn't really care about COVID-19 pr- protocols to begin with. So we just decided, ah, hell, let the kids stay.
1: It's weird, though. I mean, it is so very UFC in that. We're gonna make a big deal about releasing the guy, and it's gonna be a topic of conversation. We're gonna be like, "Hey, look, what could we do?" This guy gave, really put us in a situation where we had no choice. We got to release him, and everybody agrees with you. Everybody goes, "Yeah, you did have to fire that guy." That's a a really weird, reckless, and just incredibly poor judgment kind of thing to do. Where no one disagrees with you on your decision to suddenly release a fighter, which is kind of rarely the case if you're the UFC. And then a month later. Oh, never mind. He's back, and we're not even going to give an explanation. No reason at all. Are we going to give for why we reversed ourselves a month later on this decision?
0: What- maybe what was in the bag was just a bunch of money, and he was able to take the bag and just carry it into, uh, you know, UFC offices into into an executive's office and just just sort of leave it there. Maybe that's we're- maybe that's what happened. Or
1: maybe, like I said when I first heard about this thing, obviously it was an attempt to hack into the mainframe. Maybe that was, Are you
0: saying Atman Azatar is in control at this point?
1: Maybe they just looked at their like their spreadsheet that has the roster of USC fighters, and he was just back on there, and they're like, "Well, we don't know how it happened, but nobody wants to go ask somebody else, uh, and so we just assume that it's it's a decision that's been made for some reason, and it's all because he's hacked into the mainframe. He's yeah." No, he's I like that. the levers
0: now. That's a good, that's a good theory. Aatman ha- hacks into the UFC computers, types up the press release saying that he's back and just sends it. BCC's all the top MMA reporters done deal.
1: We're going to wake up one morning and find Conor McGregor has been cut from the UFC. Nobody's going to be able to explain why they're just going to be like, I don't know. We just all got this email this morning came from the mainframe. So it's got to be legit.
0: Wow. That's, I hope that, you know, I hope that he understands that with great power comes great responsibility i don't think i don't think he will i don't think so next question this week comes to us from our old pal the cheeseburger walrus nice to hear from him he says just shooting you a quick email to confirm that i'm still alive so can we take a second to discourse this chaz kelly shit uh i'm sorry chaz skelly uh dude was in the cage waiting to fight and his fight gets canceled doesn't get much more mma than that am i right you know at least chaz skelly seemed to take it with a with a a little bit of a sense of humor a little bit of grain of salt there
1: that's got to be such a mind fuck though because we've heard about bouts getting canceled really last minute like an hour beforehand you know especially during the covid era you find out uh this thing's off maybe you haven't even gotten into your warm up yet but this one he's standing in the cage waiting for the guy to come out and then we have joe martinez be like yep yeah, He's not going to be able to make it. The fight's off. Thank you, and that's it. And you're like, what? I, like, I, I made it all the way in here. I'm ready to punch somebody in the face. I've really got myself in the right, like, the zone to go out here and do this. And then you tell me at that time that it's over. Like, people were making this argument. Obviously, Ches Skelly should be given his show and win money for that. He did.
0: Well, he did show. He did literally
1: show. He he. And the fact that it's even a discussion about whether or not he will get his win money in a situation like this just tells you what fighters have allowed the UFC to convince them is reasonable Yeah, because sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't.
0: Well, you, you got to feel bad for Chaz Skelly who has not fought since 2019 has had three straight fights fall out for one reason or another. One of them, uh, the one, the Grant Dawson fight fell apart twice, uh, so that was that was a uh a tough one for chaz kelly and then you're right to be in the cage and have the fight get canceled moments before it's supposed to go off is either i mean number one a tough one for chaz kelly number two maybe some brilliant psychological warfare from jamal Emmers. just sort, um, sort of like the the ultimate make them wait <laughs>
1: make make them wait for for nine a months. date yeah, yeah. uh here's the question I saw being bandied about should Chas Skelly get a win on the official record via forfeit. If you make it into the cage, mm. the other guy doesn't The other guy says, you know, can't make it up out of the locker room. Should you actually get the like the forfeit victory? The way I don't know the New York Yankees take the field.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the Oakland A's are like, you know what? We can't do it today, boys we're sorry we're just yeah. we can't play this one do you get that win via forfeit because i kind of think you do
0: yeah that's that's an interesting point and in fact i believe if you go deep enough into like the sure dog fight finder or like topology fight uh matrix or whatever it's called uh you can find guys who have gotten victories because the other guy refused to enter the the ring or cage right that like someone is uh is uh Credited with a loss because they were too scared or like that they, uh, they didn't get in there. I think that that's true, but maybe not. I don't know.
1: Well, you'd see it more like in the tournament era, right? Where it was mm-hmm. like, you know, you fought earlier that night. And then sometimes guys would even do the thing where I'm going to go ahead and get in the cage and then immediately throw the towel, that kind of thing, or immediately get down and tap. Um, right. so there's a little bit more stuff going on there, but I don't know. I feel like maybe if you actually get in there, you're standing there stripped to the waist. Ready to go? Yeah, got sweat can't, can't on. You've already out. been
0: through the Harley Davidson Prep Point.
1: That's right. Once you go through the Harley Davidson Prep Point, it's a done deal, man. Yeah, you're there is like, like, yeah, there a fight of record must be decided after that. Otherwise, the Harley Davidson Prep Point means nothing. It's merely yeah. symbolic. I and mean, who wants to live in that kind of world?
0: All of my professional losses during my fight career would be from fear. They would all say <laughs> refuse to enter the cage out of fear
1: tko fear
0: uh and the next question this week comes to us from rob walden who writes in the last eight months dana white's behavior has forced espn to rebuke him publicly twice First, when he insisted on trying to hold UFC 249 when the rest of the country was closed. And second, when he stuck up for Gina Carano and insulted Ariel Helwani. Lost somewhat in the Carano deal is that by taking up for her, he went against his corporate partner, Disney. Both rebukes were extremely mild, at least publicly, but they were rebukes nonetheless. On the level of ESPN Disney... uh, on that, on the level ESPN Disney doesn't usually issue to league commissioner types. Is there any chance that Dana's actions could put the UFC ESPN deal on the rocks? I'm sure it's profitable, but ESPN and maybe most importantly, Disney doesn't usually stay in business with people who regularly push the limits of common decency. Um, this is an interesting point that we're not, you know, too very far into the UFC ESPN partnership. And we've had these two public, uh, I guess you could call them rebukes of Dana White. I don't necessarily think you are at the point or even approaching the point where the UFC probably needs to worry because up to this point, the UFC has been pretty important and pretty successful to ESPN's launching and continued support of ESPN+. Plus. Uh It's one of the primary drivers, I think, of subscriptions there. And obviously, like ESPN, Disney sees that as a pretty big deal, I think, their efforts to have that streaming service. And so uh, much the same with Endeavor, as long as the UFC is making a ton of money and doing its job at ESPN+, I don't really think that the relationship is probably in danger. However, I do recall really early on in my tenure with The Athletic when I did a story about the ESPN-UFC partnership and the UFC's move primarily to streaming and how that was going to affect... Uh, you know, fans and viewership and what, what would happen and how many people would follow them behind the paywall, et cetera, et cetera. I was struck not just by how the Disney executive, the ESPN Disney executive that I interviewed about the UFC, I was, I was struck not only how like open to the idea of the UFC partnership he was, but goddamn giddy about it, like spoke about the UFC in superlatives where I was on the end of the phone being like, wow, you didn't have to say that. Like you could have given me a different corporate answer and i would have been satisfied but this guy was like super over the top talking about the ufc and how they shared the same corporate uh philosophy and dreams and vision and all this other stuff uh and i did think it was it was a little bit odd and you know especially considering like how the fox deal ended and how the many of the ufc's partnerships seemed to end one way or another uh with one party being not at all that happy and yeah. so I do ultimately wonder how the UFC ESPN partnership will, will end and how it will progress just because that we've got this, this history that the UFC, at least from the outside looking in at times seems to wear out its welcome with places. But, uh, I don't think we are at the point where anybody needs to worry right now.
1: Yeah. I would say even calling these rebukes is putting it even too strongly. I mean, uh, granted, I, I think that maybe some stuff like this, um, raises enough eyebrows at ESPN and Disney to be like, maybe we should keep an eye on these guys and make sure, maybe even worth trying to find a way to send a message to be like, hey, we'd appreciate it if we had to get involved less often. That would be nice for us. But we were just talking about how the defense or support of Ariel Helwani that ESPN offered was really tepid. Yeah. It, it did not even come close to being like, Dana White shouldn't have said that. It was just like, we, Ariel Hawani's record speaks for itself. And therefore we're not really going to speak for him. And stuff like that. Like that's, that is not a strong rebuke. And even the, you know, trying to hold the UFC event while everything was completely shutting down and you're running around trying to find just the right tribal land that'll let you hold the thing and just the right loopholes that you can exploit to do it. And basically all they say is, please stop. You know, like that, those are very, very gentle rebukes. And I think you're right that for the most part, they this thing keeps uh the money rolling in and fits really well into what we're trying to do here with the streaming side of our business and is a really reliable kind of anchor content for something like that, that it would have to get pretty bad before I think they'd be willing to, to jeopardize that part of it because yeah. they're so upset with what Dana White, the person is up to.
0: Yeah. I mean, that said though, especially in the wake of the Ariel Helwani thing, you saw a bunch of individual ESPN personalities, employees come out and make statements about, uh, you know, the things Dana White had said, calling Ariel Helwani a douche. And they were clearly upset about it, uh, which I think stands to reason because a lot of those people know Ariel Helwani and have worked with him. And like somebody says something about a person that he is a colleague and that you consider a friend. It makes you a little upset, but it, you do get the impression. Not everybody at e s p n is probably thrilled yeah. about the u f c partnership and that the u f c is now a pretty big part of uh of the programming on e s p n plus you get the you get the impression that some of the the quote unquote rank and file or like some some individual personalities are are not thrilled yeah yeah that's fair all right we'll do this this will be the last one from david Lotteray who writes why do guys continue to call out dominant champions in order to get a fight they will almost surely lose? I get that they want to be the champ, and financially, if they win, they can start making more money. But if you're a guy like Colby Covington, you're probably not beating Kamaru Usman, but, but you'd have a really good shot at beating almost anyone else. Wouldn't it make more sense financially to get that show and win money as often as possible instead of holding out, waiting for a fight you will probably won't win? Discourse, please.
1: I think there's yeah. absolutely no way you convince Colby Covington that he won't win that fight.
0: Yeah, see, what David Dotteray, long-time emailer of the show, is applying here is normal person logic. Yeah. He's applying the logic of you and I or anyone that we know who would look at a gorilla and think, that enormous gorilla will kill me if I jump in the gorilla cage with it. Whereas an MMA fighter sees a grizzly bear or a gorilla and thinks, I wonder what his left hand is like. hmm if I, can slip, on the yeah. if I can slip the first one, he's not going to be able to stop my takedowns, frankly, because yeah. he's never fought anyone like me before. And then once I get him on his back, I don't see this grizzly bear getting up. I feel like once I got him there, I'm going to arm bar him. And that's how Colby Covington thinks about everyone.
1: Yeah. That's all uh, most fighters think about everyone, especially in their own division. And I remember Greg Jackson saying to me that like, when I would say... Or, or I I remember I was asking about our an anecdote that a manager had told me about, like where he had said, you know, the UFC had called him and said we want this fighter against this other guy, and he said, well, hold on, let me talk to the guy's coach, and the guy's coach was Greg Jackson, and he said something along the lines of, it, uh, what do you think of this fight? And he's like, okay, yeah, what's the date? We can do it. And then he was like, wait a minute, I'm asking you, like, do you think that that's a good matchup for him? Greg was like, no, no, I don't. I was. It's not the matchup that I'd pick. And he's like, but you weren't going to say that. You were just going to say like, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And he was like, look, that's, that's my job. My job is not to pick the fights. Like, that's your job. You're the manager. You, if you think you can pick a better fight for him and like kind of massage the direction of his career that way, that's what you get paid your percentage for. My percentage is if you come in and you tell me we are fighting the devil on March 22nd, my job is to go like, okay. Uh, what's his ground game like? What's uh can he fly? Uh is there like a pointed tail? Like what do I have to worry about? Let me let me find some footage of the devil in action to see what what kind of game plan we want to go in there. And that's just how they say, and that's how most uh, MMA fighters, I think, say it. I don't think you get to this point, like this level in this career, if you don't have that mindset of that, okay, I'll go out there and I'll beat anyone, especially even if you've been beat by the guy. I mean, it was a close fight pretty much between Colby Covington and Kamaru Usman for most of it you already heard Colby Covington is pretty sure that he was out there fighting the ref and, uh and Kamaru Usman got screwed that way. Didn't really get a fair shot at it. So of course he thinks that he could get in there and, and beat the guy. The question for me along the lines of what David Lutter is asking here is, is it smart for them to keep after certain fights that they probably are not going to get anytime soon, unless something weird goes wrong in another, because Colby Covington, saying no to these other opportunities like Leon Edwards and then but then continuing to talk like he just wants Kamaru Usman again that's the thing that makes me wonder is how do you think that that is going to happen that they're just going to give you that one like you don't you think you're going to have to go out there and beat like a Leon Edwards of the world in order to put yourself in that position because like it seems to me like maybe you are misreading the room a little bit in terms of where you stand in that in that pecking order and in the likelihood to get one of those fights that's the part where your calculation seems a little off not that you probably won't win because they they all think they're going to win
0: yeah i mean conor mcgregor is certain that he will beat habib nirmagomedov if they fight again yeah and he's certain that none of us saw it the first time so that Mm -hmm. uh might as well put it together again so there you go where you go that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast thanks to everybody who sent in questions this week if you have a question comment or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you go to the website co-main event.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us don't forget we're over at the patreon page all week we got the live chat on wednesday the movie club on thursday just as soon as we sort out this tie find out who won and then on friday the co-main event podcast patreon power hour heading into uh, next saturday where we got jarzino rosenstrike and Cyril gone in the main event thanks for joining us as for right now though we are done we are through we are out does the devil fly it's the question Craig jackson wants to know
1: a little bit i'd say the devil flies on a little bit like a
0: like a big like a jump shit.
1: yeah Mm-hmm. Like or a maybe grasshopper,
0: our, or like a short teleport, kind of, like from well, one side of the cage to the other.
1: I mean, good luck dealing with that. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Just in terms of managing the range, it's
0: difficult. What, what is the? Do uh, we Is there a rule on tail strikes? Is that is that legal? Could I could I engage in a striking competition with someone where I, you know, I'm, I'm throwing with my hands, my feet, and my tail? Is that I don't see Damn any in
1: the Unified Rules that says you can't hit somebody with your tail. That's true. That, that wording is not in there. The question really is, should he have to wear a glove on the tail?
0: Hmm. I hadn't even considered that. That is an interesting question. Something we should bring up in the next uh, Unified Rules meeting. I they would welcome, I'm sure, this kind of discourse.